Welcome to JW Podcast, the Watchtower Jenga of podcasts that takes down the organisation one brick at a time. Hello and welcome to JW Podcast. I have got a really great interview for you today. We've got John Redwood who attended the Stephanie Fessler v Watchtower Society court case at the beginning of February. Now, John, as it turned out, was the only person there in a journalistic capacity because the trial settled before it came to judgment. Now, John explains that there would have been some local journalists there, perhaps, if they'd reached judgment point, but they didn't because of the settlement. Now, due to a really terrible recording line, as it turned out, I've lost part of the beginning section of the interview and also the quality is not desperately good. But because the interview is such an important and interesting one, I'm going to put it out there anyway and hope that you can forgive me one more time. Now, John has written other articles about the Fessler case, which I think you really should look up, and you'll find those on JW Survey. And also, Lloyd Evans has done an interview with John Redwood as well about the case. So there is information out there. Trey Bundy is also working on reporting this case, and more details should come out in the future after the case is settled. So the podcast missed the beginning of the interview where I introduced Reuben and Betsy, but you will hear them a little bit later on in the interview. So I'll start by summarising the case for you, and then we'll dive straight into what John started telling us. The Fessler v Watchtower Society case is a very important one because it's the only other jury trial after the Candace Conte trial. And this had the potential of being extremely damning and embarrassing to Watchtower Society. And as you'll find out, it was indeed damning and damaging to them. I start off by summarising the situation of the Fessler case. So in 2002, a 13-year-old Jehovah's Witness girl called Stephanie Fessler became friends with some other children in her congregation. And these children had a mother called Terry. Stephanie began visiting Terry's house quite a lot. Stephanie was 13 and Terry was 47. In 2003, age 14 and 48 respectively, the friendship became sexual and escalated to oral and digital penetration. In 2004, age 15 and 49 respectively, Terry's daughters became suspicious of the situation and they went and spoke to Stephanie's mum. Stephanie's parents searched her bedroom and found a love letter that she'd written and they confronted Stephanie about this. They went to the elders in their Spring Grove congregation where they attended and where Stephanie's dad was also an elder. And the elders reported this to Watchtower Bible and Tract Society as they are supposed to do by their own guidelines and also to the Freeland congregation where Terry attended. However, the elders only investigated one side of this situation and they only interviewed the young girl Stephanie. They shared information with the Freeland elders but neither congregation reported to the authorities. The Freeland elders also investigated Terry and just told her to stay away from Stephanie and again no authority report was made. In 2005, aged 16 and 50, the abuse continued and escalated for another year due to no reports being made. And at this point, the elders had privately reproved Stephanie, the underage child, but not the adult. At this point, Terry's husband became suspicious and he hired a private investigator to follow his wife. And eventually, the investigator turned up photographic evidence, which they turned over to the elders. And again, Stephanie reported the abuse to the elders. And again, neither congregation made any reports to the authorities. In 2011, when Stephanie was 22, she reported Terry Monheim to the police and Terry pleaded guilty to indecent assault and corruption of a minor and she was sentenced to prison. Then right up to date, in 2017, on the 7th of February this year, the court case started, which was Fessler against, well, she filed against several people. So she filed against Terry Monheim, who was now out of prison, she filed against Watchtower Bible and Tract Society of New York, against the Christian Congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses, and against the Spring Grove Congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses. 
Now, in all of this, it's really interesting and critical to note that Pennsylvania was a mandatory reporting state. So at the time, back in 2004, when the elders had phoned up Bethel, they should have been advised to report under Pennsylvania's Child Protection Services Law. And this was crucial. So by their own rules, they were in the wrong. John explained that in court, for the five days that he was in there, the Watchtower team had a team of lawyers, not just one or two, but a whole team. He said at least one of whom was charged in the region of 4000 to $5,000 a day. Now, he said that charge would not just have been for the five days of the trial. There would have been months of pre-trial work involved leading up to the trial. He said this lawyer was one of the best and the most expensive lawyers that money could buy and that he was not a Jehovah's Witness. In fact, John likened this, this hiring of this lawyer to in the same league as when O.J. Simpson hired Robert Shapiro as lead counsel on his murder trial. He said the Watchtower were literally throwing money at this case. Now, when Stephanie filed, her lawyer asked for £1.9 million and the Watchtower Society replied by offering $100,000. Sorry, not pounds, dollars. So they offered a derisory $100,000 to Stephanie Fessler, which is really derisory when you think that they were paying £5,000 a day for months to a lawyer to defend this case. So I said to John, what on earth could they have possibly have said to defend this case? They, they obviously went into it thinking that they were going to win. So John said, firstly, they were relying on trying to prove that Stephanie Fessler was a liar. They said that what really happened between Stephanie and Terry was simply nothing more than mother and daughter kissing. And they really relied on trying to undermine Stephanie as a witness and say that she was a liar. They said that nothing sexual had happened like Stephanie had reported, that she was just a fantasist and was making it all up. This despite the fact that they privately reproved Stephanie back in 2004. So it begs the question, were they privately reproving her for mother and daughter kissing? This also despite the fact that they had photographic evidence from the private detective hired by Terry's husband. So secondly, they said that Watchtower Society had nothing at all to do with this case. And here is where John Redwood picks up the story. You know, they didn't know. They didn't have a reason. They, they thought that it was an absurd defense. Um, but then uh, Miller, in the end of his opening argument to the jury, he ended up by saying, we have nothing to do with this case, meaning Watchtower. We have nothing to do with this case. Elders are just lay persons. They take their scriptural direction from the Bible. And he said, Watchtower and DCJW don't even belong here. And that was the close of his opening statement to the jury. So they were basically saying, Watchtower Society was not responsible at all for any of this. Not at all. Right. So even though the abuse had been reported to two sets of elders in two different congregations in reporting states, and that at least one of those sets of elders had phoned Bethel to have to get advice, like the total and they still hadn't reported, they, the defence for Watchtower still felt that they, they were completely innocent of, this, of any wrongdoing. Yeah, and I, I would temper that statement by saying, did they really feel that, or is this just their defence? And, you know, I, I know for a fact that these guys, these guys very well knew what all of the previous depositions stated, what Terry Monheim said, what Stephanie Fessler said, even the testimony that was previously given by her parents, Jody Fessler and Kevin Fessler, these guys knew full well that a, an intimate relationship was going on between the two for a very long time, and they did nothing about it. Yeah. The only alternative for Watchtower was to, to find some way of discrediting witnesses and find some way of calling Stephanie Fessler a liar. Yeah and finding some way of saying that the Watchtower organization is not culpable at all. 
me wondering what's going to happen. Are they going to throw elders under the bus? Are they going to throw just Stephanie under the bus? Right. So it was interesting opening. So that was was that the entire basis of the case then that Stephanie was a liar that she had said that it was a sexual relationship when it wasn't and that was their only defence. So the reporting twice to the elders, the photographic evidence of the abuser's husband that had been presented to elders, they were just going to ignore all that and say, oh, well, Stephanie's lied. Yeah, the the interesting thing is that that was their opening statement. But as we got into trial, it became clear that they were altering their strategy. And, you know, the case really went downhill. And to give you a quick summary of the witnesses who testified, we, we had a long list of witnesses that were scheduled to testify. But the witnesses who actually did testify were, first of all, Thomas Jefferson, who represented Watchtower. And then we had uh, two elders. We had an elder, Eric Hoffman, from the Spring Grove Congregation in Pennsylvania. And then we had an elder uh, who was Mr. Hollingworth, who had, he lives in New Jersey now, but he was from the Freeland, Maryland congregation. And he was on the Judicial Committee. So there were two Judicial Committees that occurred back in 2004 and 2005. So we heard from Jefferson, we heard from Eric Hoffman, we heard from, I think it was Donald Hollingworth, and then we heard from the real the, the real stab in the back of this uh, Watchtower case was Detective Lisa Layden, who is the person who arrested and filed charges against Gary Seip Monheim and ended up putting her in jail. Interesting. So, yeah, so it was after, so we had four test, you know, four testifying. Stephanie was scheduled to testify next, but by Monday, the uh, 13th of February, um, Watchtower had just, in so many ways, which we can talk about, but in so many ways, they collapsed and finally said, you know, let's call the attorneys together. They went up to the sixth floor and uh, in, less, in less than 20 to 30 minutes, an agreement was reached and Stephanie was happy. Her team was happy. Watchtower clearly was happy that it was over and they could throw money at the situation and not have any more damning testimony released. Because I I think they were beginning to sense that this was going to become a public spectacle. And at the time, I don't know how much they noticed my presence. By the end, they clearly noticed my presence. Beginning, I'm not sure. But I, I do know that they were very concerned with their image, and they were very concerned with how much money they laid out. Right. Were going to yes. Uh, to the victim in this case. They knew what was coming, right? They did. I, I really feel like uh, they're, as a matter of fact, in the beginning of the trial, uh, they discussed various phases of the trial, even before the jury was brought in, and they were already talking about the penalty phase as if it were a foregone conclusion. So that really struck um, a chord with me. It really got me interested in thinking, well, why are they, you know, both sides actually talking about a, a settlement or a penalty phase? Because some of the motions related to what could be included or not included, um, the judge responded by saying, well, you can include this testimony in the penalty phase of the trial, mm-hmm. but not the initial phase of the trial. Right. So I think we all got the sense that there was, um, you know, there was very, and it was very ominous for the Watchtower in that unless the plaintiff just fell apart or someone gave testimony that contradicted what Stephanie said didn't happen, then only in those circumstances would Watchtower prevail. But that never happened. The, the testimony for all the witnesses, including Watchtower's own witnesses, went against their case. And I'm working. You'll see, um, I'm going to be releasing an article very shortly on the testimony of Eric Hoffman and Donald Hollingworth. Yes. You know, the two elders from the two congregations. And it's going to blow your mind when you see the things that they said. I'm going to give you one, I'm going to, I'm going to give you one example because for two straight days, and some of our readers and listeners might already know this, but for two straight days, the Watchtower, <laughs> starting with Thomas Jefferson, stated, that we are not clergy. Plaintiff's attorney put the definition of clergy up on the screen. Thomas Jefferson said, that's not who we are. We're not clergy. Right. And then the next day, uh, attorney Zepp said to Thomas Jefferson, 
really didn't match what the definition everyone else used for clergy. And they gave him an opportunity to change his answer as to what a clergyman was, that they did not want to be um, bound by the definition of clergy. Um, one of the reasonings, obviously, is that they did not want to be bound by the laws involving what a clergyman can report. Yes. So if they say, well, we're not clergy, then they, you know, incredibly are trying to avoid the idea that they Even. have to report of sexual abuse. It's, it's incredible. That they well, it's not incredible because they've done it before, haven't it? They did it in Australia when Steve Unthank took them to court, and they absolutely denied that there was such a thing as the Congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses in Australia, and they denied that there was such a thing as um, the faithful and discreet slave. Um, so they're they're very good at denying that anything exists. Now, one of the things you wrote in your article which fascinated me was when they denied that anybody took responsibility for anything and nobody wrote the letters and nobody was responsible for the um, the laws that, that are carried within the Watchtower letters. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, that started with the testimony of Thomas Jefferson. And uh, on the very first day, attorney for Stephanie, Greg Zepp, he got up there and he got Thomas Jefferson to start talking about who all these organizations are. Who is the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society of New York? Who is the Christian Congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses? Who is the branch committee? Um, Who is the governing body? Who are the men that write the letters? And it went around and around and around. You can tell that the the jury is sitting there on the first day of trial, like deer in headlights. And, you know, I look over at the jury and they're taking notes. Some of them are just stunned. And... And I try to picture myself as I'm an outsider, that I, I don't know anything about Jehovah's Witness organization or Seventh-day Adventist or let's say I don't know anything about them. And I'm hearing this information from this condescending man who ends every sentence with, yes, counselor, or no counselor. <laughs> <laughs> as if he's a professional who knows all the answers and yeah. kind of speaks in this, this uh, highfalutin, condescending tone. Well, he starts explaining these things, and Attorney Zeff was just nailing him question after question on who actually writes these letters and policies that the elders are required to abide by. And Jefferson is not answering questions. So finally, um, I mean, in courtroom theatrics, Greg Zeff, he, he goes over, at one point he sits down in his chair, he's obviously frustrated, then he stands up, he walks over to the jury, he, he leans against the jury uh, divider wall between the jury and the rest of the courtroom, and he says, Mr. Jefferson, are there humans at Watchtower that write these letters? <laughs> and, and Jefferson, Jefferson was caught completely off guard. He, he, looks at, he looks at Zeph, he looks at the courtroom, and there's a long pause, and he says, are you serious? <laughs> and it got a bit of a chuckle, but he says, you know, are there humans? Yeah. Who are these men? Who's so writing this stuff? Well, exactly. That's what he's trying to get to the bottom of. Who are writing these letters, like the July 1st, 1989, six-page mm-hmm. letter to elders about confidentiality and about lawsuits and then about child abuse and about, you know, avoiding speaking to anyone about these things. Well, he's pounding Jefferson on this, and Jefferson finally says, you know, well, these are spiritually qualified, anonymous men. And that was great. So, so, so then Zeph could come back and say, well, you tell, you know, these anonymous men in this organization are writing these letters that the Watchtower organization is publishing and shipping to yeah. the elders and the elders are required to abide by that. I'm I'm not beginning to tell you the circus, and until we get Mm. the transcripts published, and and quite honestly, there's thousands of pages, and I I think that uh, it would probably put the average person to sleep. But anybody who's interested in court cases, if you want to study the subject of obfuscation, the testimony
testimony of Thomas Jefferson is, is a perfect example in how to confuse a jury. Wow. And not just confused, but they must have been frustrated at not getting straight answers to straight questions. I have to give credit to the jury because I honestly couldn't get a read on them the first few days of the trial. And I was seriously taking notes, but I was also checking the jury every five or ten minutes. And I was sitting very close to the jury. It was a small courtroom, you know, mm-hmm. close to everyone. In fact, I took a selfie with Thomas Jefferson. Um, <laughs> but these um, these people were um, re- really difficult to read because we just didn't know how invested they were in this trial. Remember, they're pulling these people off of the street, and they brought 25 people in the first day. And out of those 25 people, they had to eliminate all but 10. And, right. you know, so they, they completed the voir dire process. They got them down to 10, which is technically eight jurors and two alternates. But all 10 jurors were there. And they're absorbing this on the first day of testimony after they've been yanked out of their jobs, yanked away from their families, thrown into a courtroom in Philadelphia City Hall. And they're sitting there listening to the first witness, Thomas Jefferson. And they are just befuddled by all the nonsense, circular reasoning, circular arguments that he's putting out there. Yeah. And thankfully, at the end of the trial, Watchtower Attorney Miller said something that really ended up shooting the entire defense team in the foot. After they settled, we went back into court and the judge says, well, I understand that an agreement has been reached. And that's what this was. It wasn't a gag order. It was just right. an agreement between both sides. Yeah. The judge said, you know, we've reached an agreement. Any other questions? And John Miller for Watchtower stood up and said, Your Honor, uh, I understand that it's legal and okay for us to speak to the jury. And that was all I needed. Oh. So I, I, I said to myself, if he's going to talk to the jury, I'm going to be there. So we walked out of the courtroom and... The jury were still in uh, their, at that point, they were in their deliberations private room that they had been contained in or yeah. isolated or sequestered in. Mm-hmm. And the, the courtroom started to buzz outside in the hallway that, uh, that day, Monday, the um, 13th. 13th. And the attorneys for Stephanie came out of the courtroom. Stephanie came out of the courtroom. Watchtowers, John Miller, and uh, CCJW attorney Lombardi came out. The uh, the court officer came out, and then suddenly there was a buzz. The door opened from the opposite direction, and the entire jury came out. And I went over there and got out my recorder, got out my notes, got out my camera, and I listened as. Watchtower attorney Miller threw up the very first question and he said to the jury, well, if you had made a decision and ruled in favor of the plaintiff, which, by the way, they had already said, they had just said we would have clearly found for the plaintiff against Mm -hmm. Watchtower. So Miller's first question after that was, how much would you have given Stephanie Fessler? And and the, and the jury, the jury looked at him like, you know, every one of them had a puzzled look on their face. Yeah. And then Watchtower's second attorney, Lombardi, says, money. How much money? What, what kind of money would you have awarded Stephanie Fessler if you had gone to a jury verdict? They wanted to know how and, much they'd saved. That's right. That's oh, right. Sick. And all it was, and I couldn't believe, I was so impressed with the jury. So impressed. We had, we had three men and seven women on this jury, and all of them stated almost at the same time. They they stated, "Well, we didn't have any thought about money. We weren't thinking about money. We we wouldn't know what to yeah. what to discuss." Oh, and it was really an unfair question for the jury because what would have happened if the trial had continued is there was a a witness being brought in by Watchtower to testify as to the net worth of the Watchtower organization. So they were going to testify as to the net worth of all of their assets 
probably know, when you get to the penalty phase, mm -hmm. a, jury is, a jury is given instructions as to how you would indicate or how you would, how you would penalize a, a company, an organization, for the damage caused to a person or another organization. And they would give them some guidelines. They would say, well, you know, if, if, the, if the organization owns $100, that, how yeah. much damage? So would it be $10 cause them to, you know, yeah. would it be $20, how much $30? Would punish them kind of thing. They weren't that even thinking enough. about money at all. Money wasn't part of their, their, their brief was to decide whether this girl, whether, you know, they were guilty or not. It was, it was horrible, but I'm so proud that the jury came back and said, you know what, um, we were looking at the facts of the case. And at that point in the trial, we weren't thinking about money. We wouldn't know what to find for the plaintiff. But they made it clear that there was no question. And another thing that I was very proud of the jury in, in what they did was they they made it clear that they were being very objective in this case. Mm -hmm. They threw out all the testimony of Jefferson. When I asked them about Jefferson, they they broke out laughing. They said they said that he was confusing. They didn't know which organization was what. They called one juror got up and said, "Well, he's a monkey wrench." Wow. And questions at this point? Uh, I don't have a question, but I, I, I read your article, John, and um, one of the things I was commenting on the article is that I'm like, okay, number one of these guys are full of, full of it. Why they treated her so harshly was 
not just that she part well, it, it was it was that she participated in a relationship when she was fourteen years old with a woman who was forty nine up to fifty one years old and it was a homosexual relationship. So we're dealing with a very complicated issue here because they're not just reproving her or disfellowshipping her for you know what they claimed to be originally they thought was just you know mother daughter kissing or hugging right but we knew what was really going on and Stephanie knew and Terry Monheim knew and the elders knew that it was a homosexual relationship so what they were really doing was penalizing her for being gay and um I have to say that it was very impressive when we interviewed the jury. This took eight took eight minutes, by the way, the jury interview. Jeffrey Fritz asked, after it was all said and done, he asked the jury, does the fact that Stephanie is gay, and she was standing right next to him when, when he said this to the jury, he said, does the fact that Stephanie is gay affect your testimony or your decision, rather, that you would have made in this case? And the entire jury, all at once, said, "No, absolutely not. No way. Doesn't affect. Doesn't affect our decision at all." So you can understand why being in Philadelphia was important to this case. Secondly, uh, then I followed up Jeff's question with my own question. I said, "Does the fact that the organization condemns homosexuality um, does that affect the way that you view this case?" And the entire jury said, no, no, we, we didn't feel that, that affected our case either. Then John Miller for Watchtower, he, at that point, he's seeing me asking questions, and I think he's getting a little irritated. He wants to, he wants to throw out Watchtower's own dogma here. He wants to do a little preaching. Mm-hmm. So John Miller raises, and he says to the jury, well, did you know that heterosexual relationships are also banned by the Watchtower organization? that are between two unmarried people. And then the jury said, yeah, one woman said, yeah, yeah, you know, we understand fornication, you know, etc." But they made it clear that homosexuality was not an issue. What was an issue was failure to report child abuse, yeah. regardless of the fact. Yeah. yeah. So that was the core of the issue. And, and I think, you know, to Ruben's point, they were using tactics which yeah. were really devious. John, I'm just going to call Betsy in here because um, I'm aware she's on a time um, limit. So Betsy, before you go, is there anything that you'd like to ask or comment on? Um, this has been really informative. Thank you so much for all your, your detailed explanation of this. Thank you. I really don't have any questions. You've done a great job explaining it. I guess my only comment would be, you know, I've, I've been around the XJW community for a while now, and you hear these stories, similar stories over and over again, and it's still always, like, it gets you right in the heart how they treat victims of abuse. You know, like, it, that's never, it's never something that becomes normalized or, uh, not even normalized, that's not the right word. It, it's not something that, I think I'll ever hopefully get accustomed to hearing because it is like you said, the victim. I forgot to say the thing, the victim. I think I'm trying to think of these child the things that they say, the horrible things that they say. It is it's absolutely it's inhumane and it's something that I'll never get used to personally. I don't think any of us should ever get used to. And I don't know how the watch matters to see it at all. Well, Betsy, let me ask you, you you know, you're a, um, a very important part of the um, admin group for the Ex-Jehovah's Witness Recovery Group 3 on Facebook, which has been a real hub of activity with persons who are expressing what they went through in the organization. So, so you and Ruben have seen a lot over many years. How would you describe how many cases of sexual abuse that went unreported by the elders or by the organization. Um, just how much of that have you seen on the recovery group? Oh my gosh, so many, so many victims that have seen nothing 
many friends who are where I grew up that are either afraid to come forward, some are ex-JW, some are still in the organization, and many of these were reported to elders. In fact, we had a case of uh, one man who was, when I knew him, he was in his 70s and 80s, and he died at the same age Fred Franz died, and almost, almost to the year. This man was an anointed elder in the congregation and gave the memorial talk every year, was the most respected elder in the area because he was one of the few remaining anointed. Well, as I started to wake up, and then after I left the organization, all the stories started coming out, especially from those who left. Um, one of my close friends, Joanna, she, she said that she left the organization because of the child abuse mishandling and the fact that they never put this guy behind bars or reported him to the police when he molested at least a dozen in his 70s and 80s. And I started putting the pieces together in my mind. I, I started thinking, you know, when I was a child, I knew this guy very well. And we all trusted him. But I started realizing he was living with families who had children in every single case. He played. You know, he played the poor victim who was, you know, an elderly accountant, and then he would move in with a family that had two daughters. Then he moved in with a family that had a retarded daughter. Oh, my God. A, it, uh, it's unbelievable. Um, and, and two other children, so three children there. Then he moved into another family that had a son. And, you know, the day he died, which he actually ended up dying visiting this family in California, he caught pneumonia at like 99 years of age and died. Well, that family, you know, was the family with the retarded daughter the, and the younger daughter and the younger son. And I can tell you, every single one of those kids, you know, to use a vernacular term, is screwed up. Wow. And the elders knew about it. The elders mm -hmm. knew and they denied, they denied it. They said, you know, we're going to protect the name of Jehovah. This is not true swept under the rug and, and that really mm -hmm. affected me because I don't know how many you know, if a guy if a guy abuses kids between seventy and eighty years of age, he just doesn't start abusing boys and girls. No, he's been going for years, he hasn't he? Sorry, I was just gonna ask you to Betsy and Ruben, because I know that you need to go, but I'm gonna carry on with John with a few more questions. So Betsy, is there any comments that you'd like to make before you have to go? Well I was just gonna say to John's last point, that's an important point too because you know, victims are often left in this position, not only of being, just having to make the decision of, okay, do I want to come forward with this and be re-victimized? Or not say anything, which again, I do not criticize in any way, shape, or form. I completely understand it. But then there's the point of, of so many of these folks are repeat offenders because they have never faced consequences for that. But yeah. then there's the guilt that goes along with that. Or, yeah, Reuben, was there any comments you'd like to make before? I'm, I'm not pushing you off, but I'm aware that you... Oh, no, 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 no that's, I appreciate it. Well, I was just going to make, um, uh, uh, John had made the question of how many. Mm. Um, they, they don't really say it, but, uh, you know, in public, or they don't want to rehash it or take it anywhere, but they do express it sometimes. And I've met many, many people through running the recovery group. I've met people that I've met in person that I've had relationships with, that uh, people that have been friends with. And I can tell you that <laughs> even when you meet people in person, the more XAWs you meet, the more abuse victims you meet. So it's, and it's not a healthy proportion. Like if you meet people from other religions, you don't hear it as much as you do with when you hear it, when you meet ex-witnesses and you get to know their stories and mm. so yes way too many so this is really what's going on right now with them being taken to court with them not being able to get away with it um with the tv commercials that are being aired right now looking for for victims it's 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 about time it's happening that's my comment for today yeah <laughs> I, i'd like to point out too that uh, you know obviously those who are apologists for watchtower or maybe you're listening that are jehovah's witnesses they're going to say that, you know, these are just attorneys out to make money.
money, they're ambulance chasers, or they're. Um, but let me tell you something. I, you know, I spent a week with these guys. Um, after the first day of trial, I was invited back to the um, plaintiff's attorney's office in their high rise in Philadelphia, and we sat down and we conferenced about this case and about the legal strategy and what was going on. And, and, and there were many things they were still trying to understand about Watchtower and their multiplicity of, of corporations. Um, at one point during the trial, um, either they called it a web of corporations, which it is. It's like a spider web. Um, but I got to tell you, these guys were not out for improper motives. They were not fabricating evidence. They they were they were putting evidence that was 100% true. These things really did happen. The testimony of Stephanie Fessler was true. The perpetrator confessed to all of it and agreed to all of it. So you have don't even have a denial of it by the perpetrator. So you know what I took away from after meeting with them for a week um, and then interviewing with uh, Jeffrey Fritz later, they are very attuned to sexual abuse problems in the community and they really do want to help. And, um, you know, in the example of uh, Jeffrey Fritz, um, he is not a stranger to child sexual abuse or to sex abuse in general. Um, he was, he represented 12 of the Jerry Sandusky victims in that massive Sandusky uh, you know, there was more than at least 50 or 60 minimum that came forward that were abused by Jerry Sandusky at Penn State. And the organization, Penn State, their head coach, uh, Paterno, just turned a blind eye to it uh-huh. and didn't report it to the police, didn't report it to the authorities. Yeah. And this is one reason the laws have changed. But these attorneys are legitimately going after organizations that did not protect children. And Betsy made a great point. It's it's not just that first child that gets abused. It's the fact that if you don't report it, a second and a third mm. and a fourth and a fifth child gets abused. Yeah. And we saw this in Australia during the, the 2015 Royal Commission. If you look at the spreadsheet, there were 1,006 perpetrators that were identified. Not a single perpetrator had, had been called, the police had not been called by the elders in any one of those 1,006 cases. But when you look at the spreadsheet, there weren't 1,006 victims. There were just short of 2,000 victims. Exactly so. And some of those, some of those perpetrators abused seven, eight, nine, even 10 victims. And this was because the first case was not handled by the elders. And that right. perpetrator was free to abuse more victims. So it's horrific. So these attorneys have very strong case and are doing this for the right reason. And, and we stand behind them. And our goal is to give them accurate information about the organization and about how this all happens and how they can stop. Well, and I just want to interject and say that my point was the same as yours. This is 150% the repeat offenders. It's 150% on the abuser. And the elders who do not report it, and anyone else who is aware of it, not on the victims. I would never, and I don't, I don't hope that I didn't come across that. It's never. No, it didn't, Betsy. Yeah. That's a great thing. Yeah, we, um, I'm gonna, I have have to go though, I just want to let you know. Okay. Ruben, thank you. Thank you so much, Ruben and Betsy, for staying with us. John, will you stay with me a few more minutes when these guys go? Because I've got just a couple more questions to ask you. It was great hearing your story. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ruben. Bye. Ruben. Uh, Love the work you're doing. You know, both you you and Betsy with the recovery group, you're really helping to, you know, cause people to bring their stories out into the public. And, of course, uh, for those that listen to the recovery group or that read Mm -hmm. JW Survey or watch the Cedars channel, those people are free to contact us and we can put them in touch with the right people, whether it's the attorneys or counselors or those who can help them deal with this problem in a professional way, you know, not in a way that, that covers up the... So, John, thank you for staying with me a little bit longer. I do have the million dollar question that I know lots of people have been thinking about and asking. You have explained it to me and I fully understand it. Would you explain to our two listeners... Why did Stephanie settle rather than seeing the case through to the end? Right. So I really can't get into her head and sit down and talk with her about that because once once the settlement happened, 
the agreement is that she's not discussed the case. Mm-hmm. She's not to discuss the, the amount of the settlement. So I can only discuss what I know about the case and why we all believe she settled. Clearly, she wasn't going to settle for $100,000 that the, the Watchtower offered her. Exactly. Clearly, the case was going in her favor. Clearly, the jury said that they were going to find in favor of Stephanie Fessler. So why did she settle? Well, we have to consider a number of factors here. Um, number one, the jury could have very easily heard testimony that the Watchtower is worth 50 or $100 billion, and they could have settled for, uh, or rather, they could have awarded the uh, victim, Stephanie, $100 million mm-hmm. or $150 million. Or it could have been uh, similar to Candace Conti, mm-hmm. which was a different case, clearly, but they could have said $25 million. So yeah. we don't know what would have happened. That's speculation. Um, but we do know they would have found in favor of Stephanie. And whatever that amount was, Watchtower would have filed an immediate appeal. And we already know their appeal tactics. Their appeal tactics would have tried to change the venue. They yeah. would have tried to stall the case. Mm-hmm. And the appeal would have taken years. I mean, it could be three or four years tied up in court because of all the various back and forth processes. And um, so, first of all, Stephanie was very and truly injured by what happened to her. She mm-hmm. had already been through this court case proceeding for at least three years yeah. since the, the court case was filed. So, for her to sit through another three years of this, um, not having justice, not being able to get on with her life, you know, that would be mentally devastating to her. Yeah. And I really feel like she did the right thing, mm-hmm. that the Watchtower made a large enough offer that the entire legal team and Stephanie Fessler said, we're willing to settle at this point and move on. And that gives her some closure. That gives us um, the benefit of having four days of testimony, which yeah. is golden. They, if they had settled before the trial, we wouldn't have had the testimony of Detective Layden, of, uh, of the two elders in this case, and we would not have had the testimony of, um, of Thomas Jefferson, which was just brutally, uh, you know, yeah. against yeah. our... You know, I think it's uh, in the end, it's, it's her decision. She, she did the right thing. Um, she exposed the watchtower. She got she got the message out that the matter concerning Jehovah's Witnesses has been handled. So there's a poetic justice to the fact that after all these years, the person who is reproved in the end is Watchtower. They received the punishment. They were held accountable for their actions. And I guarantee you they're not going to publish this on their website. They're publishing everything else about their trials in Russia and about yes. their awards, yeah. awards that they're winning for putting out you know, a yeah. sign language video, yeah. but we're but never going to talk about child abuse. There was another interesting point that you made as well, where you said that because she'd settled, that kind of, you know that there are lots of other cases following this. Now, if Stephanie, if they'd, if she'd gone through with it and then the Watchtower had appealed and that was tied up in court for years, that might have put the brakes on other cases because then they might have been thinking, well, the judge might have been saying, well, wait and see what happens in this appeal case. So although it sounds maybe counterintuitive, it's possible that it has kind of made the way easier for subsequent cases. It's hard to say. Yeah, I mm. understand what you're saying, you know, Louise. You could be right about that, although I, I think know. some of these cases would have gone on. But I will right. give you an example, and I, I won't mention the name of the case. There mm-hmm. is some information filed online. But um, while we were in the middle of this case, the attorneys informed me that there was a case in Vermont, and I was invited to go to this case that was going to a jury trial, Mm -hmm. and it was going to be a major jury trial in the month of March of the um, plaintiff against Watchtower, and Watchtower's attorney, John Miller, was going to be there along with their whole team, and just three or four days ago, I received a message that that trial following the Fessler trial, mm-hmm. had been settled wow. out of court. And so, I, you know, I don't know whether the Fessler case, you know, definitely affected the outcome of that case, but that case was settled.
it's interesting that they, if you look at the court documents on that case, and we can discuss that privately, mm-hmm. but they attempted to subpoena Garrett Lotion that just as they, <laughs> just as they did in the California case. Right. So we have a lot more cases coming in. Uh, it's important to get this out there on podcast and on the Cedars channel yeah. and on the XJW Recovery Group yeah. and any other groups you're associated with because as a result of just a few articles that we've done on survey, we've had many people come forward with very private information about their cases in different states. I'll give you one example is during the Fessler trial, because of the publicity, we had um, a gentleman from Pennsylvania who was an elder in the congregation right next to Spring Grove and very close to Freeland, and he knew all of the elders. And his daughter himself, his daughter herself was molested, and the elders swept it under the rug. Uh, and it was a horrific case. It was probably it was much worse even than the Fessler yeah. case. So he was uh, subpoenaed to testify in the Fessler case, and uh, Watchtower objected to his testimony before the case began. In fact, Judd Aaron stood up for the judge and said, the plaintiff is throwing a surprise bombshell witness at us. You know, we object. Yeah. Wow. And uh, the judge the judge overruled the objection and said, this witness can testify and will be allowed to testify. Wow. And, uh, in fact, he was, you know, on his way to Pennsylvania yeah. when the when case settled. settled yeah. what you we're said- starting to see a domino effect. Similar happened if you watch the movie Spotlight and you know about the Catholic Church. Right. Yeah, we're starting to see that domino yeah. effect uh, yeah. with the Jehovah's Witness organization. Well, what you said about this other case settling days after Fessler, it could have had an effect because if you remember back in 2007, Watchtower settled 16 abuse cases all within two weeks, didn't they? Almost as if they were trying to clear the decks. You know, let's get all these cases out of the way. Let's just get them settled, clear the decks and get this over with. And of course, it's like a hydra, isn't it? It just keeps popping up more and more. But I suspect that maybe they're going to have another go at doing that, at getting lots of cases just cleared and out of the way. Yeah, they, they are, Louise. And, and i got to say, I'm, I'm really sad about this. I mean, I, I spent, you know, a couple of weeks of my life, you know, in this trial, mm. just sitting and listening to every word, transcribing everything, and be, just beginning to write articles about this. And I, and I think, well, we could, you know, we could be talking about, uh, you know, Tony Morris and his tight pants tirade and, you know, we could approach activism from that level, but mm. this is this is something I can't joke about. No, no. It's, it's pretty serious. It's, it's, um, it's something that it's something we have to do. We have to talk about it, mm. and these cases need to be dealt with because we're dealing with people's lives. Um, Stephanie suffered from extreme PTSD, mm. and she suffered from night uh, night tremors mm. and nightmares. Um, the, the list of things that she suffered with as a result of the uh, protracted and extended yeah. um, non-handling of this yeah. kept her from getting the proper counseling she needed. And this this seriously damaged her life. Yeah. And yeah. we've got to put an end to it. And, and I think that's what we're seeing. You know, we've seen this with the Catholic Church. It took them a long time yeah. to change their, their laws and policies. But if you check some of the websites for the archdiocese in many different areas, um, we see that uh, despite the horrors that the Catholic Church did, they're at the point now where they they have apologized to many of the victims mm-hmm. and that they've made financial remuneration. And, they have, um, they have you know, safeguarding in place now. They have safeguarding officers in all the churches, which the, the Jehovah's Witnesses still don't have, despite it being... Um, a law in the UK that there should be, you know, nominated safeguarding people in every organisation. Certainly in my school, where there's 40 students, we have four nominated safeguarding officers, two for adults, two for children. Um, in every person, every person that I speak to that attends a church, they know who their safeguarding officer is. My little boy that goes to rugby club, they have two safeguarding officers, and I know one of them because she's the deputy safeguarding officer. So it's only the Jehovah's Witnesses that aren't putting yeah. this into place. All other organisations and churches, including ones with terrible abuse histories, are now enacting the proper um, safeguards and checks 
to you know to at least try and stop yeah. it happening. I'm not saying that it's going to be perfect. We're going to start but... seeing, yeah, absolutely. We're going to, we're going to start seeing a real dilemma for Watchtower because obviously they they've made some changes that they've spun to the witnesses as a different reasons. For example, they went from the Kingdom Ministry School or the or the Kingdom the Kingdom Ministry School that the congregations engaged into the Christian Life and Ministry meeting. Um, yeah. Partly to avoid the fact that they're a, a school. school, they wanted to get yeah rid of the word school, so they didn't have to have a safeguarding right. officer. Yeah, cynical. But the real question is, you know, what's going to happen because they they treat women so poorly mm. that what's going to happen when the government says, well, if you have a congregation, we need at least say two female and two male um, guardians or representatives that can uh, help children or intervene or testify or have a position of authority mm. that we have a, a real dilemma. We, you know, the Jehovah's Witness organization allows women zero authority. But yeah. as, you know, the Royal Commission brought out, the Angus Stewart tried to, to make the point that why can't a woman be in a position, position yeah. of authority? What's your problem? She a, right? Yeah. 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 So we've, We've got a real dilemma because Watchtower can't do that because their their policy is a policy mm. of misogyny, and uh, yeah. um, only men can handle these positions of responsibility. So, mm. you know. yeah, the feet are getting closer to the fire. I feel with every case that comes up, and you you're really right. The more outlets we can get this message out to, the more people will be able to free themselves from the cult, or will be able to come forward as victims and get get justice for themselves or we'll just be able to seek closure and understand that they're in in a, an organization that does not look after children um so one of the things you said is that you're going to be writing some more articles um including your interview with the jury and i really do look forward to those can you tell me where you'll be publishing those yeah so um in the next day or two you're going to see an article on jw's survey and uh, that article is going to be about the Part two of the trial summary. Um, I'll give you a sneak preview. Spoilers, um, yes, one of, please. One of, one of the elders uh, who testified, who was an older gentleman in his 80s, he's from the Freeland, Maryland congregation. He's since moved to New Jersey. Mm -hmm. Well, this elder testified, as did Eric Hoffman, that they had no formal training in the matter of uh, protecting children, no judicial training, no right. police training. No formal training whatsoever. So they admitted that, and they said, well, you know, we get our answers by calling the legal department. Um, so at, at one point during the trial, this uh, Mr. Hollingworth, who, by the way, has eight children and something like 26 grandchildren, and some of these, pe some of these people I know very well wow. um, that are his children and grandchildren. So this man was asked, did he understand about clergy client privilege or attorney client privilege mm -hmm. and his answer was well i learned about it by watching television oh my god and i had i had some water in court with me i almost spit my water out oh because my god. He, he said he learned about client privilege by watching television, television. And uh, I just I just felt sad because this guy was had oh, no training God. as most of the elders have no. zero training, and they claim to have training because they say, well, we go to Kingdom Ministry School cool. for elders. But that's right. First, yeah. Yeah. First of all, that that's bogus because they they have very small limited section on child abuse, and the only thing they tell the elders is that well, if the parents or another party decides to go to the police and it's a mandated state where where it is mandated in just about all states are, mm -hmm. are mandated to report child abuse or even accusations of child abuse, then you can allow them to do that or you cannot interfere with them doing that. It, mm. What the uh, Watchtower likes to say, they use the term absolute right. Right, yes, and they the, say yes. It's your absolute right, right to go to the police. Yeah, so... This is what they have. They say, well, we don't interfere. It's your absolute right to go to the police. But in, in no documentation does any elder receive 
and by the way, this you'll see this in the article, mm-hmm. that the elders were, were never in any case of the Fessler case at any point in time were never advised to pick up the phone and contact the Child Protective mm-hmm. Services or the police yeah. under any circumstances. Despite so, despite um, the area being under the Pennsylvania Child Protection Services law, which they should, you know, at the very least, they should have known that. They, they absolutely should have known that. And what's interesting is they gave conflicting testimony. Um, one, one of the elders stated, well, he found this out later. And um, Dear. another one said, well, you know, I found it out from the legal department. Um, but mm. the legal department never contacted the police and they never went right back to the elders and told them to call the police. Yeah. So um, I really, I think our, our listeners need to know just how passionate these authorities are for for contacting, protecting children. Mm-hmm. I had an opportunity to spend an entire afternoon after the trial with Detective Lisa Layden. Now, Detective Layden has handled more than 260 cases of child abuse alone over the past several years. And she has multiple degrees and is about to get her PhD. She is um, the most respected authority in in the York County area on child mm-hmm. abuse, and nearly all of the cases go through her. She was practically in tears when she told us of these horrific cases of abuse, and wow. the Watchtower attorneys pummeled her with questions. Attorney Miller, time and time again, said, "You know, are there any circumstances under which?" You would say that this mother-daughter style kissing uh, that was reported to the elders was not to be reported oh, to the authorities. My God. And they they pummeled her for yeah. two days because she testified on Friday and she testified right. again on Monday. Yeah. And at one point, uh, Miller got so exasperated when she said, no, you have to report. Yeah. Even an allegation. Yeah. Even, even if it's a... Yeah. Uh, you have to, yeah. Someone that's not her mother. Yeah. You have to report it and then allow the legal process to take place. And um, I, I can tell you, I met with this woman and she's brilliant. She's wow. passionate. She is protecting the children. And the sad thing is that the Jehovah's Witness organization has nothing to lose by allowing the authorities. No, I know. To I know. It'd clean, it'd clean up the house for them, wouldn't it? It would clean up the house and they could go forward knowing that they dealt with it. And instead, it's like somebody that's been caught out in a lie. And instead of fessing up and going, yeah, okay, yeah, I lied. They just do more and more and more and more lies, thinking that if they lie enough, it'll all go away. Yeah. Well, it's only going to get worse. They are digging a, a deeper and deeper and deeper hole. Mm. And all of it is in the name of protecting this archaic two-witness rule, which, you know, oh. the Australian Commission mm. and the Stewart, they, they talk quite a bit about this archaic two-witness rule. But, uh, you know, the, the sad part is that there are high-ranking members of the organization who have been themselves convicted or accused mm. of child abuse in the past. And many of these cases have been covered up. And, and this is one of the reasons why the organization is failing to produce the thousands of documents they have, right. um, you know, sequestered in New York. Because it would, it would implicate too many people higher. Wow. That's yeah, fascinating. It's really, it's sad. Well, John. But we have great people like uh, Trey, Trey Bundy yes. is on the job. We have other journalists and writers. Um, we have... Um, uh, John Cedars has been doing a great job with his, um, he just did an interview um, with myself and Covert Fade, um, where we discussed the same issue that we discussed Brilliant. today, and he did a, um, he also did a documentary on Jehovah's Witnesses and child abuse, Is There a Problem? Mm. And we have so many other great activists um, like yourself and your team that are exposing these things, and uh, I just, there's so many, so many more issues to discuss, but um I will say, you know, to answer your question, our readers will see day two mm-hmm. of the JW survey article coming out in the next 24 to 48 hours. Also, we'll, we're going to have an entire article on whether Jehovah's Witnesses, elders, or clergy or not, because I didn't tell you the end of that story. Oh, yeah. I'll give you a pre- okay. brief 
So for two straight days, for two straight days, the elders, uh, the, the uh, Watchtower witnesses testified that they were not elders. Jefferson testified, uh, sorry, clergy. Yeah. Testified that they were not clergymen. Mm-hmm. Hoffman and Hollingworth testified that they were not clergymen. Suddenly, on the third day of the trial, we had a surprise announcement in the morning. This is Friday morning. <laughs> the judge came up and said, um, ladies and gentlemen, we understand that there has been a change in Watchtower's testimony on the subject of clergy. Wow. And whether Jehovah's Witness elders were clergy. And so she read the statement that stipulated that Watchtower has now agreed in this trial that Jehovah's Witness elders are clergymen. Wow. And, I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. Yeah. As the as this fell across the courtroom, you could see the case falling apart. They suddenly admitted That's that they right. were clergymen, that they no longer wanted to deny the accusation. And they had put this up on screen on the, you know, the... So John finished off by explaining that although it was really clear from the beginning of the trial that Watchtower were going to lose this case, by the time they'd made this crucial U-turn, it was blindingly obvious that they were going to lose. And Watchtower's only concern was that they save as much money as possible in the case. Now, if they'd reached the part of the trial where people testified to the worth of the Watchtower Society, it could be likely that they would have been awarded a much higher amount of damage. So to save money, Watchtower decided to settle the case, and for peace of mind and for it not to drag on for another six, seven years, Stephanie Fessler was also content to settle the case because she had suffered a significant amount of emotional damage and she just needed closure at this point. And as we know, as has been explained, Watchtower's tactic is to drag these things out for as many years as possible. There is more information that you can get from John Redwood about this case and I would urge you to read his articles. He was the only person, as I say, that was in the courtroom that could report on them and he did. He has indicated that when the case is settled that he will be able to publish information regarding his interview with the jury, which I really look forward to. Thank you so much for listening and I look forward to speaking to you again in our next JW podcast. Thanks for listening to our show and remember to share the love and spread the word about JW Podcast.